This is the Saddler's Post, conversations on horses, leather trade, and the art of saddlery, with our host, Christian Love. Today on the Saddler's Post podcast, we have with us David Himmel of Himmel Brothers, one of the finest producers of leather jackets. David, welcome to the show. All right. Are you guys ready? So premise of the podcast is we celebrate uh, makers, anybody in the leather industry, designers. Um, you sprang to mind very early on in my uh, list of people I wanted to have on. I think as far as in Canada goes, uh, you can correct me. I hope you do. As far as people producing the quality of product, of leather jackets, of garments that you do, um, you're you're up there in very rarefied air. Let's uh, let's talk about David Hemmel Hemmel for a minute. So I I can't claim to be the only jacket maker in Canada. Uh, that's for certain. There are small jacket makers uh, across the country doing things like stadium jackets. Uh, small shops there are certainly with our huge immigration there are people who are competent leather jacket makers arriving all the time i think really what makes it so rarefied to be a leather jacket maker in canada or anywhere in europe or the u.s is that the uh, business model to make it work is difficult that is uh, i'm unique just because we're such a high-end bespoke product and and from that perspective there just aren't that many makers left that can run that model the uh i can think of a few brands but even a couple of those brands that we're making in canada are now making most of their goods offshore so it's almost like they started here and then they moved away but i'm stubborn and i'm still doing my thing and we're still a small shop of super high quality bespoke jackets. That's awesome. I think I think you do see that business model where um, people want to, you know, manufacturers, producers, small businesses want to be big businesses. So that means, you know, hey, you move offshore, and we're going to move away from bespoke model to this is our line for the year. Um, and you run around and ask retailers to pre-order so you can schedule all your production. And then, you know, you, you go to tanneries and just say, Hey, I need, you know, all this leather, you know, instead you're actually saying, no, this is bespoke. Well, the you know, it's form and function. And I mean, you know, this, you're a saddle man. So, you know, the form often mitigates the the price and the outcome but the the truth is like if you got a jacket made in pakistan all in leather included it's maybe 70 us dollars to produce you know what we're doing is a form and function model just the leather alone in my jackets is more than 500 us dollars and that doesn't even cover any of the other materials or the labor but what we do is we've recreated the processes and I, I don't know how it compares to salary but we recreated the processes the way jackets used to be made 
uh, around the 1920s and 30s and 40s in North American cities, which was small shops, uh, mostly run by East European immigrants, mostly Jewish, sitting in a shop with maybe three or four machines, ordering from tanneries that were mostly producing leather for boots and then producing front quarter horsehide for the garment industry. So I started this project with the intention of recreating that process. And that's a hard process. There are very few people that understood that process and it was even harder to find people to work on it with me. So, you know, it's not about the price. It's about the materials. It's about the process. It's about that lost knowledge and recovering it. So even if I wanted to move it somewhere else, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Do you feel, and and again, this is what I'm trying to explore. This is my, you know, idea here is, do you feel being stubborn, doing it the way you're doing it, are you forcing or opening a door to someone else, someone, some maker going, well, I'm looking at Himmel Brothers. Uh, you know, the trade isn't dying, it's shrinking, but we're breathing new life into it just by refusing to go away. Hmm, that's a, that's a kind of a tough question. You know, uh, honestly, Christian, my team are old. Uh, you know, I'm 57, May is 59, Robert's 70. Um, I've got a couple young women that work with me on the helping cover the orders and the social media side. But the truth is, not that many people actually want to learn this trade in Canada. So what you find is that these skills exist, but they're very localized and international to specific places. So I have always been looking outside Canada to, to sort of scale what I do in a way. Um, so one of the biggest barriers to growing what I do and turning it into something that has some sort of sustainability has always been finding the people interested in doing the work. Everybody wants to be a designer. Everybody wants to be this sort of fabulous business owner, but um, really it's a bit of a struggle here in Canada to find people that want to take pride in learning a trade and a skill when it comes to sewing. Um, I can tell you that uh, this year my brand is being replicated in a way because I'm a designer primarily and because of my, I mean, the people listening to this podcast don't really know me, but I had a long history in vintage clothing and really this project started out of my love of leather jackets and my knowledge of the history of North American leather jacket manufacturers. So I have a real cutting edge understanding of the design and the manufacturing process of these jackets. So I have been now, I'm in my 12th year, uh, replicated and copied by a lot of other brands, but mostly brands that exist in Japan or Europe or the US. So I have, have been looking to expand my uh, ability to make more jackets in and 
I have now made samples in Japan, in two factories, in Portugal, and in the U.S. And it looks like, and this is what's very interesting to me, there are factories that, not factories, shops, that do similar quality work to what I do. Uh, they need a little tweaking, but very similar. But they're in jurisdictions where they have access to wonderful craftspeople that could operate the machines that I might not have in Toronto. So, for example, in L.A., there are a lot of uh, sewers that can uh, do leather work coming up from Mexico and uh, Central South America. In Portugal, the government really supports uh, the clothing industry there. So there are wonderful factories where people do uh, uh, traditional leather craftsmanship. Uh, and I've worked with those. And in Japan, uh, because the Japanese are such a small batch, high quality production sort of culture, there are a few shops that could do this similar kind of work there. It is very hard to sort of get a foothold, a growable foothold here in Toronto. I don't know about Sault Ste. Marie, but I can tell you it's difficult here. And it's not because of the lack of people. It's because the incredible expense of the city. I mean, to really incubate something here, it's about the high cost of real estate, a high cost of wages that need to be paid in order so people can afford to live here, the ability to get to work. That's really limited my growth here. Yep. So I'm looking to look outside Canada to keep to keep growing my brand, sadly. Well, yeah, it, it really is a, a culture almost because if governments or society, let's say, let's make it a broad general term of looking at things, um, like you say, to incubate something, like I have tried to expand my business um, many, many times is kind of how we first met. Uh, Absolutely how we met, the magic of the interweb. Exactly, and, and, you, and you realize like, oh yeah, but you know, scale up. Oh, I can't. And how am I going to scale up? Well, that takes a, a, a set of skills that are just unique scaling because of, I mean, in the saddle industry, it's the same thing we can sell more than we can produce. The marketing is good, the quality is amazing, the salespeople are well-trained, and the whole bottleneck of manufacturing leather goods stops. It, 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 it comes to a grinding halt at, yeah, but we only literally have five people in the factory at the moment with this set of skills, and it will take two to three to four years to get someone from not knowing to knowing and are they going to stick around for four years you oh know oh my god yeah i've tried training people and uh you know i've run into every possible reason after spending incredible amounts of time training and it's not because we don't pay well you know like i pay really well but i just can't get people to stick around here so i've uh I, I mean, I, I, I could tell you the uh, incredible madness of the various reasons, but, uh, you know, rather than uh, focusing on intergenerational issues, I could just say that uh, it is literally easier for me 
to look outside of Canada to uh, build a really ethical, I mean, in the end, I'm trying to build a great history and a heritage of jackets, and I'm trying to build an incredible product. But I'm also trying to build an ethical product where everybody's paid fairly and 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 they enjoy their work. Like I consider everybody that does anything for me on my team, right? And that includes my tanneries. That includes you know I'm dealing with like first world tanneries for the most part, who you know they're environmental. They remediate their water. They they try and purchase their animal hides from you know uh, ethical producers they're using hopefully as best as i can assess non-toxic uh, tanning processes and they're cleaning all their wastewater and i know all the people that work for me intimately and i know their needs and as i expand outwards i'm looking to do that model and become more price efficient and that's a very tricky that's a very tricky game, right? It's why it is luxury goods, because for me, luxury isn't about the brand. It's not about producing a $20 jacket and selling it for 3000 It's about uh, producing a brand in which everybody on the team is uh, making a fair living wage and making a beautiful product that's going to last forever and outlive me and outlive the owners. And uh, unfortunately, I just don't think it's possible for me to do it here in Toronto. I'm gonna to continue my bespoke business here, which is the, you know, making each jacket custom for the people that can't fit a regular fit, but I am going to be making a ready to wear line probably in Los Angeles and in Japan as a way of expanding the brand and expanding my creativity because I can't do it here. And this is the struggle of, the most basic struggles. Uh, my machine mechanic uh, retired, Henry. I don't know. I think you met Henry back in the day, no? I think uh, I did, yeah. Yeah. So Henry was a genius. You know, Henry yeah. grew up since he was a teenager fixing every machine. He could do it with his eyes shut. And as he said, even the electronic, he's like, David, the electronic ones, I could fix them too. You know, but he retired. And a lot of my machines are vintage machines and no one, there is no one, there's no one that can fix them anymore. You know, uh, so you have one breakdown, you spend two weeks trying to find someone to repair the machine. Yeah. You get three different mechanics. I spend more money experimenting with sewing machine mechanics on a machine than I spent buying the machine. Right. So, you know, that's just not cost efficient. Whereas, if I go to Portugal or if I go to Los Angeles, there's 12 or 20 or 50 sewing machine mechanics. There's a thousand machines available for purchase. There's, if I needed five sewers or 30 sewers, there's guys and women available uh, that could be hired that walk in and they have the skills, right? Yep. So, uh, you know, it's very interesting to me because the international model of what I do gives me access to a lot of eyeballs through the internet. People who are really interested in high quality, high design work and simultaneously access to making things outside here because, you know, 
my love of living here in Canada and Toronto is strong. As you know, I come up and camp in your neck of the woods like multiple times a year. But uh, the the model for making here is not great. There's no government support for yeah. what we do. And I, I do think it's a sad because when uh, people talk about immigration, um, you know, my parents were the generation of immigrants that came from England because the country badly needed skilled, high-quality tradespeople. And I don't think much has changed. We still need that. But finding them, accessing them. Um, and finding a place where they can live and work and afford to, right? Yeah, you know? Exactly. Like, you can't live in the city of Toronto for less than 50 bucks an hour. You know, like the minimum cost to uh, live here is a family income of $110,000. And uh, that's already $45,000 above the average income in Canada, right? So how are these folks going to come here and work for 25, 30 bucks an hour? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, sewing, you know, which is a good wage, but it's not good enough. Uh, and then, you know, you've got to open a shop somewhere here. It's got to be on a subway line. Uh, otherwise, it's a two hour commute. And uh, it's just not possible. The the economy here in Toronto, and I can't speak for Sault Ste. Marie, is set up for bakers and real estate people. It is not set up for manufacturing, sadly. However, there are other places in the world where it is. And uh, as we are global, that's where I go now. Well, so, th that's yeah. the question to me. I find that country of origin is mattering less but the ethics i think you're on to something where if you if you can say to people we go where we need to to get this produced but we produce it ethically we produce it to the same high standard um so i, th I think that's i mean i don't know how often it comes up in conversation um when you're selling in you know japan or you're at a show in las vegas or or you know wherever you go to do your marketing and retailing how often does it come up that hey where's it's this funny, made? you know because people don't think about that to some extent but and i and i also know there are a lot of i'm not going to name them but there are brands that try to sell that that's what they're doing and i know they're not you know so it's obviously an important point for some of these corporate and middle-sized brands, you know, that they sell that, project that image that that's what they're doing. Um, you know, I solve these problems through transparency, right? So I'm transparent about the people that work for me. When I tag, uh, when I create social media, I often have my staff in the social media, and if they have social media, I tag them. If someone wants to reach out and talk to my team, they're, they're like, uh, welcome to, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I disclose where I get my leather from because I'm working with these great tanneries, and they're as committed to what they do as I am to what I do. Um, probably I'm not going to be sharing where I'm making work my next uh, shop that I'm working with 
But rest assured, I, I've already started the process and they're great people. They're basically me in another city, you know. Um, but the reason that I'm trying to maintain those standards is because it reflects in the product, right? Like, you know, I, I, a good example would be, uh, I don't know, do you guys work in horse leather? I mean, you make saddles, but uh, is, is it all cow or is it? it it's uh, 100% cow. The, the Customers will stretch out to some other leathers, but never knowingly would they do horse. <laughs> yeah, because they're, 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 they're horse-loving people. But yeah. It, as and, you know... I make horse jackets, uh, and the horses come from Poland, from my tanneries for the most part, where uh, they have. Uh, I mean, is this a is a bad topic because we don't have to talk about this? No, I want to it, talk about it because the problem I have with with the horse industry in general is that everyone gets on their figurative high horse about. Um, animal cruelty and you know they're the you know my clients will be the first to share and post and and complain about especially canadian history with sending horses to slaughter and do it's you know there's there's pigs sheep uh cattle going to slaughter every single day and then as as soon as it's a horse we're we're very upset about it because of our emotional connection to horses. But right. then I, so I, I, uh, you know, I connect with all the animals, uh, but I also eat animals. <laughs> and, um, obviously people who love horses, I understand why they would, uh, have, uh, an issue. I, I, I would say historically, it's not accurate. Uh, if we go back to the Mongolian, the first horse-loving culture, Mongolians uh, both ride, care for, raise their horses, and then eventually eat them. Uh, that goes back uh, centuries. Uh, there are lots of cultures that eat horse, especially in Europe. Now, my parents are East European, so... Uh, um, I will say, interestingly, that in the U.S. up until the 80s, there were three huge uh, uh, purpose-built slaughterhouses for horses. And uh, Americans have millions of horses, pets, uh, racing, uh, farm animals, uh, work animals. And uh, they're big animals, as you know, you know you're looking at thousands of pounds of animal and when they get old they get put down and when they get put down they have to be buried disposed of etc just like any other uh, uh being and uh unfortunately uh, or fortunately i don't i'm not sure how people perceive it those millions of horses produce a lot of millions of horse corpses and traditionally all the way up until the 1980s when a horse was uh, done being a work animal or a pet it would go to a slaughterhouse and that uh, 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 the byproducts of the slaughter of horses not 
for food, not for hides, not for leather, but for uh, aging purposes, the byproducts would be repurposed. And shoes, every shoe was made of horse leather in the U.S. Uh, up until the 60s, uh, you know. And I, I'm a historian of jackets. The majority of the byproduct of the shoe industry was front quarter horsehide. And it was a superior leather for making garments. And it was a birth-to-death life cycle of uh, using farm animal products. Whether you, If you're a vegan, I get it. Uh, but uh, as far as work animals and farm animals, this has been a human tradition going back hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands even. Um, mm-hmm. When those slaughterhouses were shut down uh, by the, uh, uh, I guess you would say basically PETA and the anti-horse slaughter movement, things got very bad for horses. You had millions of horses in the U.S. that had to be put down, and a lot of those animals had nowhere to go and were now and continue to be exported to Canada and Mexico for slaughter, and not in great conditions. Uh, uh, you know, if you look at at the way things were working when there were slaughterhouses versus not, um, you know, these animals were cared for, and when it came time for their slaughter with a purpose-built uh, slaughterhouse, at least the animals were ethically uh, slaughtered. And now you've got them being loaded into boxcars and shipped, right? So yeah. uh, I don't think it's great. I can tell you, for example, that in the droughts uh, five, six years ago in Alberta and across the U.S., that... Uh, in Alberta alone, they had to slaughter over a million horses just because people didn't have the money for the feed to keep to keep them going. And uh, you know, how do you deal with a, a million slaughtered horses, right? You know, like you can't just dig a million holes and bury them, right? Yeah. So uh, this is this is just the reality of of the world we live in. It's one in which. Uh, I guess back to my brand that we focus on getting well-treated animals that are ethically slaughtered because if they're not, their 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 hides, their skin is damaged, and no one wants that. You can't make something out of a damaged animal, right? So, I guess that ties in or loops into the whole issue of uh, from birth to death. Uh, which is something that I believe in, in terms of what I make and how I make it. Um, you know, we're trying to make ethical products from ethical tanneries, from ethically uh, slaughtered animals as best we can using environmental processes to make things that will last and not feed into this disposable consumer culture that we live in. Now, whether you agree with that philosophy or not, um, or if it, if it, if it works in someone's framework or not, that's, that's what I do. And I understand all those processes and participate in them. So that's all I can say about the, uh, the issue of horse slaughter. There are better experts than me, but, uh, uh, that's the world we're living in. And those are the impacts. Sometimes people want to do, uh, good things and end up doing more harm than good. 
uh, for uh, the things around us, right? Yeah. And that is a complex issue. It is complex, and I can't pretend to, you know, to articulate well enough, uh, you know, the I, you know, very much agree with you, you know, the whole cycle, you know, when I'm making something out of leather, I feel that's the ultimate respect you're paying to the animal. And, and I think a lot of, um, indigenous people, uh, the, like Mongolians, I refer to them all the time because of the horse culture that they have. Um, yeah. nothing goes to waste because that is disrespectful. You, you don't just go, Oh, that's just a carcass now. And they just say, what do you do? Leave it to rot, bury it. Um, no, you you use it to provide shelter, to provide clothing, to provide um, shoes. You know, you and and that's a life. Uh, the cycle. That's the life cycle yeah. of everything, including us. You know, in some strange way. You know, I I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a life cycle person. I also hunt and fish and and uh, go into the wilderness, as you know. And uh, I feel it's very important for me to participate in every aspect of my um, uh, life, including going to farms that my friends run and trying to purchase as much as I can from the people that I know that they know where the things come from. You know, I live in Kensington Market, so, you know, I'm, I'm on a first name basis with all my the stores, vegetables, fruits, everything, you yeah. know? So, uh, yeah. it's an interesting luxury of my lifestyle that I try very hard to put that energy and that satisfaction into that connection, both with the things I make and the people I work with and the places and the sources and, and, yeah. uh, right across the board. Right. So, yeah. Uh, maybe history will say uh, uh, we were all monsters working in leather. I don't know. But assuming your podcast is about leather, then, you know, that's where we're at. I've yeah. had some very interesting conversations over the years uh, about leather stuff. I remember meeting with the Consular General of Iceland who... Uh, told me that every year they have to call their herds of wild little Icelandic ponies because um, otherwise they starve and they suffer uh, and wanted to know if I knew someone that was interested in Icelandic pony skin and then told me that they had a tannery that was tanning salmon skins from their fishery and was curious if I'd be interested in fish leather and I uh and uh, I had him send me some, and um, quite frankly, it had a little bit too much of a, a wrong odor for me. But uh, it was fascinating. They told me that they're selling fish leather for the shoe industry. So yeah. that was that was amazing. And I uh, I met with another fellow who uh, is responsible for the annual yak harvest in the Arctic, and he was tanning the yak hides here. And uh, uh, because they have an annual uh, legal controlled indigenous hunt for yak. 
and then he gets to sell the uh, yak leather off to sort of, uh, I believe the majority of it was going to Japan to make luxury golf bags. Anyway, I thought that was fascinating. I, so I, I've had these sort of interesting encounters with uh, different people across the community of people that uh, are connected in some way to the leather industry. And uh, as I said, because because I believe what I'm doing is, is uh, an ethical thing and part of my human culture, I'm open to... Uh, learning about all the different sort of sectors and uh, the people that work with that stuff and and feel like as long as you know what you're doing what you're getting and where it's coming from and you, you you're given the information you can make that choice yourself right you, you make cow saddles for horse riders i make horse jackets for motorcycle riders and other fashionable such as they are. Yep. So, well, again, this is the, the podcast, and we're talking about the leather industry. Everything I hope to be talking to every aspect of it, and that includes, you know, fish, elk, horse, um, you know, and to me, it's it's important that, you know, peel back the layer a little bit and, and look um, at, you know, what's going on. And, and I just love you know that you've you're not just a designer who's like i'm gonna do some fast fashion make some money you know it's a, it's not just skews and units that you're pumping oh, out God, no. right <laughs> so you know i wish i wish i even knew how to do that quite frankly you know like this is a this is a passion project for me you know about creativity and history and heritage Right. So for me, I, I imagined this uh, resuscitation of this historical uh, design and historical jackets that have sort of been lost in history and and redesigning and recreating them using the same processes that people were doing all the way until the 1960s before fast fashion was invented and all the manufacturing moved away, you know. The, the the garment industry in Canada and in the U.S. started evaporating in the late 60s and early 70s. Ironically, with uh, the first place offshore was Japan, then Korea, then South America, and finally China, Bangladesh, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, anywhere where the cheapest jurisdiction was. Right? Yeah. And, and this is in no way to suggest that the people that are working in these giant factories aren't skilled but the whole model is not about quality it's not about producing design it's not about producing garment it's it's the like late industrial capitalist garbage machine yeah where you're just supposed to buy some garbage one week throw it out the next week and buy some more garbage and and cycle through it at a rate and it's simulated it's simulated fashion it's simulated design it's simulated quality, right? To quote my friend Baudrillard, it's a simulacra, you know, and uh, I wanted to make something authentic, right? So my whole business model is based on authenticity. And, and I mean, what you do is authentic, right? There's no way around it. You're putting something together that people have to rely on. It's a tool. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting. I joined this um, leather industry chat room and um, they were talking about, you know, how people are turning to, I can't even stand the term, vegan leather. Uh, people well, are... Well, it's plastic or mushroom product. Exactly. A, a just, lot of chemistry involved. But yeah. yeah, I just am offended with the, the term leather. If You know, you have multi-million dollar marketing department you can't come up with a name uh, other than a prefix and then leather <laughs> like you want to you, you know, know something funny so there's this great book uh uh there's this uh cornell professor i think it was Seidel. i think so uh uh and he writes books on the history of industrial manufacture so he wrote a great book on the history of the invention of the zipper um and the reason i found out about him is because he had contacted me when he was doing his research for his zipper book but he wrote a book on the history of uh artificial leather and uh the book is fascinating because excuse me um it's fascinating because the uh the history of artificial leather, fake leather, uh, vegan leather, if you will, uh, was really the story of DuPont, who, uh, you know, in this book, I'm going to roughly paraphrase what I remember. Uh, uh, here, I actually have the book in front of me. It's Robert Canigal, uh, K-A-N-I-G-E-L. And the... Uh, the book's called Faux Real, Genuine Leather and 200 Years of Inspired Fakes. So he documents the history of the desperate uh, 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 urge to invent fake leather. And the reason uh, being that uh, the real leather industry and one of the reasons horse leather was so predominant was the, the Industrial Revolution, right? All those machines were run on leather belts. And the stronger the belt, the longer the machine would run before the belt would break and you'd have to replace it, right? Yeah. So in, until the invention of, like, rubber, uh, these guys are running these leather belts, miles and miles and miles and miles of belts running these factories. So uh, the plastics industry and, and the chemical industry were like, how do we replace these old-fashioned processes and at that time you know leather used to take you know months to tan but you know before the invention of chrome tanning yeah uh and 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 quite frankly it wasn't a great industrial machine uh product right so dupont starts this process of trying to come up with artificial leather and simultaneously you know you've got goodyear coming up with rubber and they're trying to replace uh, leather-soled shoes with rubber, right? And you've got uh, DuPont trying to uh, replace leather uppers on shoes with synthetic leather. And they're also trying to find a way to sort of like take all the waste of the leather industry, all those split hides that, you know, the shavings and the splits, and sort of reconstitute them with some sort of binder and create something that looked just like leather. So... It was like really a, a whole 200 year history of trying to fake leather 
And now we have this industry where everybody's like vegan leather, and it's like there's nothing new. There's, there's nothing new here. Yeah. It's it's literally the plastics of the chemical industry and the the chemistry industry trying to come up with ways to uh, make replacements for what was the slow world you know organic world of making uh life cycle products right and and it, it's no surprise that with the rise of chemistry and the industrial revolution and mass production and all the things that now we're looking at the real cost of a hundred years later with climate change and 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 you know teflon you know forever chemicals floating everywhere and mercury everywhere you know that uh, now we're we're seeing the results of this like industrial revolution of stuff that's been going on for uh, decades and decades and decades, and these folks are, uh, you know, thinking that they're on the cutting edge of vegan leather. So I find it fascinating from my Himmel perspective and my brand perspective and all the things I do. I I I I. I, I'm like, I'm all for innovation. I'm all for change. And I think it's fascinating. But the whole construct of the life cycle of the farm industry and the animal industry and the shoe industry and the clothing industry, what we do is way more ethical, in my opinion. We're byproduct. We're byproduct people. We're taking the byproducts of industries and we're ethically creating things that last hundreds of years not and not in a toxic way in a people can use them for a long 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 time and they only get better with age and they're and they're beautiful and they employ people to create a craft now if if you can find a flaw in that business model then you're basically finding a flaw in humanity in my opinion that's just me maybe someone else has a different attitude no i beautifully said I mean, that's the argument against that is, is what more chemicals, more things that are, will never, ever break down in a landfill, um, yeah, you know, just like insane. Uh, right? Yeah. And it's in and, and the beauty of it. When that leather jacket is no longer, um, uh, suited to be a jacket, it can be recycled into a small wallet or a bunch of wallets or or um, you know even and 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 in the worst case scenario let's say it goes into a landfill in a worst case scenario the the jacket itself is non-toxic it will break down and it will just turn into organic material it's literally just full of vegetable tannins in a worst case scenario if it breaks down and gets tossed out in 40 years that's 39 years and eight months longer than the average fast fashion item. So there you go. Like just, you know, the real future for humanity is not AI. It is not increasing our productivity. It is not uh, having cooler and cooler and more and more stuff. It's about slowing down and finding new ways to uh, find and create uh, things in our lives that slow us down, that cost some labor, that cost some 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 real functional costs that distribute distribute the economy amongst everybody, 
not just concentrate the economy amongst a few oligarchs financing money offshore. So I look at what I do as a, a social statement, an economic statement. It's a political statement, but also it's great solace for me. I have a great joy at the end of the month, every month when my customers tell me they're just blown away when they tell me people stop them on the street and say, where did you get that? When they tell me I've changed their life in some way and that maybe, you know, no one will know who Himmel is in 20 years when I'm dead, but um, there'll be some Himmel jackets floating around there for the next hundred years. Maybe someone will be like, I wonder who this guy was. Like, look at this thing. It's amazing. Hey, the, so, there will be uh, the, the, because I, I think there'll always be that person that, um, that historian that's just fascinated with, you know, they'll see an old movie and, or, yeah. you know, they got addicted to, like, oh, that's, like, I don't know how you can't watch, say, um, Quadrophenia or some movie with. I, I love your choice of movies. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a perfect, that's a perfect icon of my, uh, uh, my punk rock youth. It's a good choice. And, you know, I have a film degree, Christian. You don't know that. but No, uh, I did not know no, that. I started as a film historian, so you're. You're hitting all the nerd cues for me. Well, I was going to introduce you as a Renaissance man, and um, there you go. You're just kind of <laughs> that's <laughs> just perfect. I'm just, I, I'm just I'm such a nerd. Dude. But I but I think they'll always be, and I love that aspect of the the nerd. I think we we need to kind of respect our inner uh, that that freak that's like I don't care about what's new. I'm I want to know you know how that was made 50 years ago or um you know when it's 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 the same like i'm on a a kick of of looking at you know a boot manufacturing um whether it's everything from a say a boule boot right up to a viberg or or something oh and... you know did you see brett just got a wood pegging machine from germany no so so now he can put soles in using wood pegs i'm not kidding like there is no bigger nerd of boots than brett viberg you gotta mm-hmm. i gotta give big shout outs to uh you know canada we don't we contribute a lot to other countries because people who are really good at things leave here and then go pretend they're american that's the great canadian <laughs> tradition but uh it's so true yeah but you know we have some great people in this country that have chosen not to leave and um red is one of those guys where you know they just make an incredible boot and he is obsessed with the quality and the history of boot making to the point where, you know, he spends half his time restoring old boot machines and teaching people how to use them. So that's awesome. You know, yeah. You well, know, and I, like that's a great example of someone who just does incredible things in leather. You know, maybe he won't, he doesn't, he might not see it that way, but you know, I, I talk to that guy every day. Uh, you know, you know me, I like to talk to all my leather nerds and, yeah, and uh, in Canada, and uh, you know he uh, he's really committed to his craft, you know. And there just aren't that many people that can be committed to a craft and make a living and make and employ fifty people like he does and keep that thing going, right? That's a real 
that's a real art form. You know, manufacturing uh, uh, a million boots in Lyon and selling them is not not an art form uh, as compared to uh, employing a whole bunch of people in Victoria, Canada and making an incredible boot. That takes, you know, that's a magnificent, opus to boot making right there yeah and then that's what i'm trying to discover is you know have we finally raced to the bottom we found the cheapest place on the planet to make things and realized that the bottom of that barrel we've scraped is nothing like you've you've bought all the crap you can and filled all your landfills now it's time to to say take that um, skilled person or that young person or that immigrant and set them up in a store in your empty downtowns and have them start. I I agree with you wholly, but simultaneously, you know, I feel like we're in the great momentum machine and the whole system is winding down to the point where it's not just that people don't understand that, this is what they needed but now they're running out of the money to get what they needed you know we're just going through this inflation inflation quote unquote where you know the interest rates are going up bankers uh, you know everybody in the money industry is still making tons of money but regular people now are having a hard time with gas food groceries and mortgages and uh, and jobs and places for their kids to live and cities are emptying out and or they're filling up but they're filling up to the point where people have nothing no money for the fast fashion even and i i i ask myself is this is this i was hoping when i started this 10 years ago that we were turning backwards to quality material goods because i believed that I spent so much time in Japan where that's key, right? Yeah. People have small apartments and they only own like 10 amazing things, right? You know, and I thought maybe North America is going to become like Japan. But after 2016 and the Trumpification of America and the, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that we can become that here or not but i personally will hold out to be the purveyor of those things and you know when i started i had middle class people buying my stuff and i have less and less middle class people uh i would like more of them uh part of my goal in producing this ready to wear line is to try and create a product that's affordable enough that maybe some people in uh, the lower income brackets can afford to buy one of my jackets. So that's my, that's my current goal. Nice. Not, not cheap, but just in a better price range at the same quality. So we'll see how that works. I don't know. You yeah. Know, I, hope, knows? I hope so. I, I live in a bit of a fantasy world where, you know, the people buying saddles, saddles has always been a high quality, high priced item. Um, I think since post Second World War, you know, the people riding horses for pleasure can afford 
generally i'm generalizing that yeah. you know they I want mean, it's a, it, it, it was guys who worked on ranches and fancy people oh. yeah and you know i was still you know i'm meeting more ranchers now and people who who work cattle from the back of a horse that's great but they still demand an extremely high quality um equipment so the leather they're using is the best and there's so much pride in saddle makers um that um they're not they're not you know generally mass producing you know um junk they're even if they're high volume producers yeah, you, can't, you can't put your life in your hands on top of a big animal with junk yeah that's, that's, exactly that's so i'm living in in that world but you know i'm i'm the same when i'm like looking at buying you know i make my own belts and whatever i can out of leather whether it's a satchel or something like that but when it comes to a garment or a pair of boots yeah i i find myself on the consumer end going wait a minute 800 bucks for a pair of boots can i do this you know am i like and it's it's like i want that but <laughs> You know, I can't stretch to that to go and stand <laughs> on a floor well, riddled with tags. I can tell tags. you, I, I too try to wrap my mind around it because I make the stuff. So my solution was, well, if I can't afford it, I'll make it. But, uh, you know, I have a world-class collection of boots and jackets, and they're all vintage. And, you know, the majority of it I bought for peanuts because I put effort into going to find these incredible things and become very knowledgeable about them. So, you know, there is a will, there is a way to have nice things. And, uh, you know, part of the reality of the world we live in is people are so strained that everything is an efficiency. Why cook when I could just order Uber Eats? Well, you know, I went to chef school and I prefer to spend 30 minutes cooking my meal than 30 minutes waiting for Uber Eats. Uh, yeah. And I live in Kensington Market, so I could go to a market and buy my groceries. I don't have to get in my car and go to a Loblaws. So, you know, you make choices, and the quality of your life is reflected in those choices. That's that's the way I feel about it. And I, I'm sure you feel very similar. Yeah, it's so, so true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, look, moving to Sault Ste. Marie from southern Ontario, you're you're choosing to live in a northern community because of the advantages and what it has to offer. And you're surrounded by people sometimes who are like, it's such a disadvantage living here. And you're like, I don't know what lens you're looking through or the fact that you've never lived anywhere else. Maybe you don't have perspective, but... Yeah. You know, yeah, it's uh, it well, really is. I, I'm a city guy, Christian, but I, I get why you live there. So, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I did and, too. Uh, I was just about I really to say, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I I can't thank you enough for sharing uh, your passion, your knowledge, and I really uh, hope and and that you know you carry on and continue with. Uh, producing fantastic quality goods well that's my intention what i feel that's your intention let's all hope <laughs> yes and and a little bit of action in that hope plan too yeah there you go yeah all right we'll just keep plugging away super thanks man david himmel thank you very much thank you hey it's dave himmel himmel brothers leather 
Uh, it's been a blast with Christian on the Sagos Post. You can find my custom, bespoke, amazing handmade leather jackets at www.himmelbros.com, H-I-M-E-L-B-R-O-S.com. That's also my Instagram. That's my website. I also have my own personal Instagram, Woke Dirty Uncle. Look me up there if you want to see my adventures in the real world. So we make custom jackets. Christian is an amazing guy and an amazing saddler. And thanks very much, guys. This has been the Saddler's Post with Christian Lowe. Thank you for listening. The Saddler's Post is sponsored by Christian Lowe Leather Care. Visit christianlowe.ca.